Uh, well, friends, uh, the other day, my family had a day off together. And so my wife and I took our children to a shop called Hobbyco in the city. Uh, you might have been to that shop, uh, but it's a shop where they have miniature models. Uh, when, we, when we went inside, we saw, amongst many other things, a scale model of the White House. Uh, we saw a scale model of some classic cars, like the old E.J. Holden. And uh, we saw a scale model of uh, the Titanic. And uh, we were blown away by the artistry and craftsmanship and the level of detail that had gone into these models. In fact, it was the level of detail that made them so believable in pointing us to the real thing. Now, uh, we've finally come to the end of our series on the book of Exodus. And uh, if you just skim through the final section uh, in chapters 35 uh, to 40, you might want to just um, grab your Bibles and, and just run your eye over those last chapters. Uh, you'll notice that there is a lot of detail about the tabernacle and everything associated with the tabernacle, including uh, its furniture and its priesthood. Uh, these are important details because, uh, as we've seen over the previous weeks and months, the tabernacle in Israel, which, um, as you know, was essentially a tent, was meant to be a scale model of heaven itself. It, it looked back to the heavenly paradise of the Garden of Eden but it also looked forward to Eden version 2.0, if you like, uh, which is heaven itself. Uh, what is heaven like? Well, the most important thing um, about heaven is not the waterfront mansion, but the fact that God himself will dwell with his people. Now, that's why the tabernacle was the place where God had chosen to dwell with the people of Israel. Uh, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, uh, you might remember that God says to Moses these words, and let them make a sanctuary, which was essentially the tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. However, friends, uh, you might be wondering why these details about the tabernacle are repeated in chapters 35 to 40. Uh, it almost feels like deja vu, doesn't it? If you just flip through those chapters, because if you remember, we've already seen all these details before in chapters 25 to 30. I mean, it is true that chapters 25 to 30 uh, were instructions that were given uh, to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. Whereas uh, these final chapters, chapters 35 to 40, uh, are all about the people of Israel completing uh, the building of the tabernacle. But why go to all these, this length to repeat the details again? Well, uh, I want to suggest that these de details are repeated because of the astonishing grace of God towards the people of Israel. The details are repeated because of the astonishing grace of God towards the people of Israel. For do you remember what happens in between these two large descriptions of the tabernacle, in between?
between chapters 25 to 30 and chapters 35 to 40. Well, chapters 32 to 34 happens, doesn't it? Where we see the great sin of Israel in worshipping the golden calf. It's one of the great failures of God's people in the Bible, don't you think? Uh, you know, God has just rescued the people of Israel from slavery under the selfish and harsh and murderous rule of the Egyptian king, Pharaoh. And he has brought the people under his own loving and gentle and life-giving rule. He has bound himself to his people by entering into a special covenant relationship with them. He has given the people of Israel his wonderful law in all its wisdom and justice and goodness. But no sooner have the people of Israel declared with one voice that they will do all that God has commanded them in the law, that they delude themselves into thinking that this golden calf can replace God and give them all that God had promised to give them. And so they end up worshipping this golden calf and engaging in immoral behaviour. It really is an appalling sin on the part of Israel. And what we have seen is that they deserve nothing more than God's anger and his absence from them, which brings cursing, rather than his presence, which brings blessing. And yet, astonishingly, chapters 35 to 40 tells us that the tabernacle and all its furniture and the garments for the priesthood are completed. Now you can see it there in chapter 39, verse 32. Have a look with me at chapter 39, verse 32, where we are given a bit of a summary statement. It says in, in, in that verse, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. It's quite clear that despite the appalling sin of Israel, God is still committed to dwelling with his people. Uh, it's as though the golden calf incident didn't happen. <laughs> the project is still on track. Uh, near where I live, uh, there have been lots of new apartments going up uh, just before the, the coronavirus pandemic hit. But uh, one particular project had stalled for many months. I mean, they had started to build the apartment block, but for many months, uh, all work had ceased. Uh, it turns out that there was a dispute between the parties who had an interest in the apartment block, and the matter went to court, which meant that all work had to cease. However, I noticed the other day that they had started construction again. Uh, things were being built again, uh, which prob probably in, uh, means that the relationship has now been restored. Uh, that's what's going on here in Exodus, isn't it? The building of the tabernacle in chapters 35 to 40 suggests that the relationship between God and his people have now been restored. It's as though the golden calf incident didn't happen. Things are back on track. But how is it that such appallingly sinful people can 
have their relationship with God restored in this way? Well, it's the same reason that any of us who are sinful can have our, our relationship with God restored. And that is because of God's character, which is one of grace and mercy. Uh, last week, we saw that wonderful description of God's character in chapter 34, verse 6, didn't we? Chapter 34, verse 6. Uh, it says in that wonderful verse, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, friends, this is what God is like. He is merciful in not giving the people, his people, the punishment they deserve. He is gracious in giving his people what they do not deserve, in, in continuing to dwell with them and promising them blessing. And friends, I, I want to say that God hasn't changed. Now, if you and I are people who have put our trust in Jesus, then we are the people of God today. Now, we all have idolatries and our sacred cows, even though uh, they may be more respectable and often hidden than the idolatry, the blatant idolatry of the golden calf. Now, we too engage in immoral behavior, whether it's uh, sexual immorality or greed or otherwise. And yet God is merciful and gracious to those who turn to him. He is committed to his relationship with his people and wants to be present with us. Does that mean that God doesn't care about sin? Does he say that the golden calf doesn't matter? Does he sweep all our sin under the carpet as, as though it wasn't important? Well, no, because the gracious character of God in Exodus actually points us forward to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is at the cross where you see most clearly that sin matters to God. For you cannot see Jesus dying on the cross for your sin and my sin and say that sin doesn't matter. But at the cross, we also see God's extraordinary mercy and grace in granting full and free forgiveness and the promise that he will dwell with us, his people, forever. And so, friends, uh, the building of the tabernacle in chapters 35 to 40 points to God's mercy and grace. But uh, what we see next is that those who know God's mercy and grace are the ones who contribute to the building project of the tabernacle. The ones who know God's mercy and grace are the ones who contribute to the building project of the tabernacle. Uh, if you just flip your Bibles uh, to chapter 35, verse 22, Exodus chapter 35, verse 22, uh, you can see there that the men and women of Israel bring their precious jewelry to be used in God's building project. Uh, in verse 23, they bring their finest materials and linen to be used in the building project. 
In verse 24, they bring their silver and bronze, as well as their finest wooden furniture. A bit better than Ian's, I'm sure. You see, God's people bring the best of, it, of their possessions and contribute them to God's project of building his tabernacle. But what is striking here is the mention of the hearts of the people of Israel. I wonder whether you noticed that. Uh, in verse 20, we are told that everyone whose hearts heart stirred him are the ones who contributed. In verse 22, it is all those who were of a willing heart who brought their, their contributions. In verse 26, it is the women whose hearts stirred them who are the ones who contribute their talents and their gifts. And in verse 29, we have a great summary sentence which says, all the men and women, the, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now, uh, friends, where have we seen the language of the heart in the book of Exodus? Now, when was the last time in the book of Exodus where the language of the heart was used repeatedly? Do you remember? Well, uh, it was used of Pharaoh, wasn't it? Who was the one who hardened his heart repeatedly before God. Do you remember that? You see, what the book of Exodus is teaching us is that the person who does not know God is the one who hardens his heart towards God and lives selfishly for his own building projects. But here, what we see is this wonderful picture of God's people who do know the Lord, who do know his mercy and grace to them, having hearts that uh, contribute willingly and joyfully and generously, not to their own selfish ends, not to their own building projects, but towards God's building project. But where is it that they get all this stuff from? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt with nothing at their disposal. And so where do they get all this gold and silver and bronze and fine linen and quality furniture from in the first place? Well, if you remember, remember, just after the final plague in Egypt, as God leads his people out of slavery uh, from the land of Egypt, he allows his people to plunder the Egyptians, to take all their gold and silver and, and precious jewelry. In other words, all these material goods that the people of Israel own are things that have been given to them by God in the first place. It's a great deception, isn't it, to think that uh, I can live my life in selfishness because the things that I own come from my own hand. I mean, friends, uh, what do you and I own that wasn't given to us by God in the first place? We might think that we have gained all these things from all our hard work, now, that might be true to an extent. 
But even when we have labored for the things that we own, the skills and opportunities that has produced these things have been given by God, isn't it? And so what we see happening here is Israel recognizing that their possessions are not their own and giving back what God has so generously given to them in the first place because their hearts have been stirred and moved by the grace of God in their lives. Uh, now, it's true that God's building project is now no longer about building the tabernacle. Uh, that building project has served its purpose in God's plans. But now God's building project is about building something much more grand. It's about building his temple, which is the church. And God calls upon us who have come to know his mercy and grace at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the ones who contribute to this building project willingly and joyfully and generously because our hearts have been changed by the grace of God. But I want to say that we will not be like this as long as we simply view God as an abstract idea. Now, it's a bit like me liking the idea of doctors. Now, you know, I, I like the idea of doctors. I like the idea that they do good work and save lives. I like the idea that they exist in this world. But it's a different story, isn't it? If I have cancer and I need to trust my doctor with all my heart to save my life. And if he is a doctor who saves me and rescues me from a certain death by skillfully removing my cancer from me, then I will only be too happy and too willing to contribute anything I can to the work of this doctor who has done so much for me. That's sort of what is being said here, isn't it? It's those who personally know God's mercy and grace to them, whose hearts will be changed to contribute willingly and joyfully and generously towards the building of God's church. Are you someone who contributes towards the building of the church? Because you have come to personally know God's mercy and grace in your life. How is it that we can contribute? Well, the most obvious way from this passage is through the giving of our money and our possessions towards the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus in this world so that people might be saved and the church built up. Even though we are going through a coronavirus pandemic at the moment, we are some of the richest people on the planet. How wonderful it would be if we can use our money willingly and joyfully and generously towards God's building project. In fact, if you have a look at Exodus chapter 36, verse 5, if you just run your eye over chapter 36, verse 5, you can see that the people of Israel bring so much that Moses has to tell them to stop contributing towards the work. I mean, it's astonishing. 
Imagine if we gave so much that our treasurer, Matt Halani, has to tell us to stop. No more. Because we have more than what we can, what we know what to do with. How can you imagine something like that happening in our time? But it's not just about money, is it? We can give our energy and time and resources to serve Jesus by proclaiming the good news in the places where God has, has placed us so that people might hear the word and be saved. We can contribute by using our gifts and talents to encourage our church family with God's word so that church and church at nine might, might be built up and strengthened in the faith. It might mean giving up opportunities to build up our own dreams for our lives so that we get serious about building the church, which is what Jesus has come to do. In fact, for some of us, it might mean giving up our day job so that we can contribute all that God has given us and our gifts full time to proclaiming the good news of Jesus so that others may be saved. Uh, there's a wonderful scene at the end of Schindler's List. Uh, you might know that Oscar Schindler was the one who saved thousands of Jewish lives from certain death during the Nazi era. But in this scene, uh, Schindler is at the end of his life and he looks at his car and his gold and his possessions and he regrets that he didn't give more to save more lives. Uh, in a very real way, God doesn't need our money. He's not dependent on the things that we give. But friends, uh, let's not have this kind of regret when we come to the end of our lives. Will you and I be the ones who are moved to give willingly and joyfully and generously towards God's work of building people up through the gospel? Uh, well, friends, uh, we've seen God's mercy and grace. We've seen the hearts of the people of God moved uh, to generously give towards God's building project. And finally, in chapter 40, we see that Moses finishes the work. He puts the tabernacle up. He puts the furniture inside. He consecrates everything, including the priests, so as to make everything holy, fit for a holy God to dwell in. And in chapter 40, verse 16, you can see that it says, This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Uh, I saw the other day an, Im an image of the Olympic Stadium in Japan, uh, which has been completed for the 2020 Olympics. But uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic, the reality has been that the people of Japan have had to wait for the glory to fill the stadium, which will be later on this month. But here in the tabernacle, there is no such waiting, for we are told that the glory of God immediately fills the tabernacle as soon as it is built. Now you can see it there in chapter 40, verse 34. 
4. Let's pick it up from chapter 40, uh, verse 34. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of God would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was, the tab was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The glory of God is everything that gives God his weightiness and importance and splendor. Uh, we saw last week that essentially God's glory is his goodness, which is characterized by his mercy and his grace, his steadfast love and faithfulness and his justice. Everything about his character that is good is his glory. But this glory actually poses a problem because did you notice that it prevents Moses from entering the tabernacle? God is so glorious and so holy that even Moses himself cannot enter. And yet a cloud does cover the tabernacle. Why this cloud? Well, we've seen this cloud before, haven't we? Uh, we've seen God leading his people out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a fiery cloud by night. We've seen the cloud surrounding Mount Sinai where God spoke to his people. In other words, the cloud is a symbol of God's presence and his dwelling with his people. It's a bit like the royal standard that is flown at Buckingham Palace. Uh, when this flag is flown, above the palace, it means that the, that the queen is home, the queen is in residence. If this flag is taken down, uh, you know that the queen is not there, she's not in residence. The cloud in Exodus is meant to tell you that God is in residence. He is present and dwelling with his people. He is still committed to them. And so we reached the end of the book of Exodus. The people of Israel have gone from being slaves of a selfish and evil king to being slaves of a generous and loving Lord. They have come to know the Lord their God. He is their God and he is going to stick with them and be with them even though they are sinful. Now that may be the end of Exodus. But it's not the end of the story of the Bible. For eventually, the people of Israel reached the promised land. It's no longer appropriate that God dwells with his people in a portable tent, for they have arrived in the land. And so if you remember, King Solomon is the one who replaces the tabernacle by building the temple as a permanent dwelling for God. And yet, in what has become a familiar pattern, God's people turn away from God again and again in their sin and idolatry and immorality. 
until the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 10 has this tragic vision of God's glory and presence leaving the temple grounds. It's as though God is now fed up with the people of Israel and their sin. Until, finally, God's glory returns in the most surprising and unexpected and personal way in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John says, And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, if we want to see God amongst us in all his glory today, what we need to do is to turn our eyes to Jesus. For Jesus is the one who came to achieve the greatest exodus of all. He is the one who, by dying on the cross, has freed us from our terrible slavery to sin and death and the devil and has brought us into his wonderful kingdom so that we might serve him, that we might contribute willingly and joyfully and generously in our lives because our hearts have been stirred by his kindness and we are thankful. And even though Jesus has now returned to heaven, we are promised in the scriptures that God continues to dwell with us, with you and me, if we trust in Jesus, by his spirit who lives in us. But then it's going to get even better. For in our New Testament reading this morning from Revelation 21, the Apostle John describes what heaven itself will be like. It will be a place where God is present with his people. In an unmistakable echo of Exodus, we see in Revelation 21 verse 3, a loud voice from the throne in heaven that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Further, heaven will be a place where a temple is no longer needed or a tabernacle is no longer needed for the whole earth will be God's temple and the glory of God himself will fill the whole earth so as to give light and life and blessing to all who are there. Now, you see, friends, the book of Exodus points us to where we as God's people are ultimately headed. In the final chapter of Exodus, Moses is unable to enter the tabernacle and get close to God. But the astonishing thing is that if you and I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then one day we will dwell with God and God himself will dwell with us for all eternity. What a great hope we have in Jesus that God will be present with us forever and ever. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word to us this morning. And we thank you that although, like Israel, we have often gone astray in our sin and idolatry, you have shown us your mercy and your grace at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you indeed that you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness towards us, your people. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us uh, today to be so amazed by your grace that our hearts might be stirred and moved and changed so that we might serve Jesus all the more. Now, Father, forgive us for the times when we have been stingy in the ways that we have served you in our lives, whether it be with our money or our time or our um, energy. Please forgive us for those times and help us to repent so that we might contribute willingly and joyfully and generously towards your building of the church through the gospel. Thank you, Father, that serving Jesus will never be in vain for you have promised us so much more than what this world can offer. And so, Father, please help us to live in the light of that great day when we will dwell with you forever and you will dwell with us as we receive our heavenly inheritance that can never perish or be defiled or fade. For we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.